This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Today, we are going meta and talking about talking. How can we make the most of student talk in the classroom? How can we make the most of teacher talk in the classroom? How can we use talk in order to promote thinking? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hey, good morning to you. Today is Saturday, the 10th of June, 2023. We have had our first text in already. Connor has texted in to say good morning. Good morning to you. Always happy to hear from you guys as we sit together for breakfast in the morning. So if you are listening on the Podbean app right now, you are free to text in via the app. If you're not, if you are listening to us elsewhere, um, or you are listening to us on the replay, so it is not 9.01 on Saturday the 10th of June 2023, you can have your voice heard by tweeting us. I am at Mr. D. Lester, M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, or one word, um, or the official Teachers Talk radio account. We will always, always be happy to hear what you have to say, because like I said before, the, the topics that I choose for my show and that all of us on Teacher Talk Radio choose for our shows are things that interest us. And so these interests are not going away. And so while the stuff that we talk about might not be evergreen content, um, it might be that we are reacting to things in the news, that we are reacting to what's happening um, right up to date in the world of teaching. Uh, most of the stuff that we talk about will be talked about forever because we know that in teaching things come round in cycles. We know that things get repeated. And so we are always, always, always happy to hear your thoughts, um, which interestingly, and so thank you, Connor, for uh, for prompting this already. Interestingly, is something I'm going to come back to later on today when we do our talk about talking. Um, I don't know about for everybody else but for me this has been the longest first week back after a holiday that I can remember. Um, I can't believe that we've only been back to school for a week. I cannot believe that the first day back was in fact only five days ago. It has been a jam-packed week. For us um, we had the GCSE and Spanish A-levels, sorry, the Spanish GCSE and A-levels, that's the way around I want to say it. This week we had our GCSE on Tuesday and then the first A-level paper on Wednesday. Um, And so that is a very exciting for for our students to have done that. we have had on Tuesday here on Teachers Talk Radio, um, I hosted a show uh, with Katie Lewis 
and Mike John from Pearson, um, along with Corrine Harrington, a languages consultant and teacher who was involved in the change of the Pearson GCSEs, um, and also with Alicia Blanvillon and Adam Lam, who are both um, heads of languages. And we had a really interesting Twitter Spaces discussion about the relevance of language learning, why students are and are not choosing languages, and how the changes to the GCSE are looking to, um, to, to promote language learning. So if you haven't listened to that, please do go back and, and have a listen. It's a fantastic hour. We do start off with some technical hitches because, as we all know, a, a brand new show, brand new platform. I've never hosted a Twitter space before. Um, it never it never goes off without some kind of technical issue, but we resolved it. And we then had a really interesting discussion about, um, about language teaching and learning. So if you are a linguist, if you are somebody who is interested in the teaching of learning of languages, please do go back and have a listen to that. Um, and be aware that we do have a, another space that I am hosting, sponsored by Pearson edXL, um, coming up in a couple of weeks' time, which I am really looking forward to. I think, for me, the weather has also added to how long this week has felt. Um, I spoke at length during my first few shows in the summer about how the, the, the changing weather can affect my personal seasonal depression and so for me the the blazing sunshine this week i think probably hasn't but as connor has pointed out we are here in uh in england expecting thunderstorms today or forecast thunderstorms today it's always hard to know whether the um the weather forecast is telling us we're going to have something means that we should expect it um, but that is what we are being told so hopefully hopefully a break in the weather might uh, might make it seem a little bit less arduous good morning tom tom is our chief here at teach talk radio he has just texted in oh tim is texting in tim is one of our long-term friends of saturday morning breakfast i love it Everybody is texting in. Everybody is getting involved today. This is what we like here on Teachers Talk Radio. We like to hear your views. We like to hear what you have to say. Kent is ridiculously bright and sunny. Tim is saying we've got. So I'm in Gloucester. We have. Uh, I, I understand that a, a, a running live weather report is not what everyone is tuned in for this morning. I know that you are here to talk about book, but you know we are British. Well. I am British, um, and I know that a lot of my listeners are too. And, and talking about the weather is one of the things that we do. Um, so this is, if if you are not from the UK, this is probably quite a good cultural um, point of knowledge for you. We do like to talk about the weather. If you are talking to a British person for the first time and you're not sure what kind of small talk to make, talk about the weather, because we can do that all day. Um, it is here in Gloucester. Um, cloudy at the moment, which is nice. It's clouding over, but uh, we will see. We will see what the rest of the day has to bring. So between exams, between the weather, between the fact that I've celebrated a birthday since our last show, this really has seemed like a very long week. 
Um, and it has me counting my blessings, to be completely honest, uh, because my half term, this half term is only five weeks long. Um, I'm having now done a week, I'm 20% through, I've only got four weeks left to go. I know that a lot of my friends, um, and a lot of my colleagues and other schools are going for six, seven weeks this half term. So I know that I really can't complain. <laughs> I really can't complain. But it is always good to know that the summer is on the horizon. Um, and I would be interested, you know, I've never had an inverted commas normal job. Um, I've always either taught or acted or written for a living. So I've never had a job where it has been like nine to five all year long and you choose when your holidays are. So I would be interested for any of you listening who have, what is it like to have to book your holidays, to, to not know that every six or seven weeks you're going to get a week away from the workplace and that you actually have to, to schedule that in? Because I know so many of us as teachers, we whether we want to admit it or not, we will count down to the holidays. We will use the holidays as a benchmark of how to get through the year. Um, and that's not even as unprofessional as it sounds, I promise, because quite often what you will do when you're planning your lessons is look at it and go, okay, I've got seven weeks between holiday and holiday. Um, what do I do? How do I, um, how do I fit in everything that I need to? And so I'm not sure what it would be like to live a life where you aren't, you don't always have something on the on the horizon to count down to. So if you have experienced that, let me know, uh, because I would be I would be interested. I'm sure it's not a case of the grass is is greener on the other side, um, but it would be interesting to see what thoughts everybody has. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reports that one in three primary schools has no male teachers. The study by the Warwick Business School says the proportion of schools without a male classroom teacher has increased in the last 12 months. The report's author, Dr Joshua Fullard, said this lack of male teachers was bad for pupils. Dr Fullard is Assistant Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School. 
He went on to say that there is a large body of research that shows students benefit from being educated by a teacher with certain similarities to them. The report also found that schools in special measures are less like a male classroom teacher. In total, the report found that 24.3% of all state schools in England had no male classroom teachers. The report called for teachers' pay to be raised by more than 10% and for a merit-based reduction in tuition fees for university-led teacher training to be introduced. Julie McCulloch, Director of Policy for Askell Union, said more needed done to attract men and women alike, and a spokesperson for the DfE said the department wanted the profession to be inclusive. Northeast Child Poverty Commission website reports that new figures published by the DfE confirm that more than three in ten pupils across the northeast are now registered for free school meals. This is an increase from January 2022. It remains the highest proportion of any part of England. The figure of 30.4% is compared with 18.8% of pupils in the southeast and 19.4% in the east of England. The England-wide rate is 23.8%. All regions have seen a significant increase in the number and share of children eligible for free school meals over the last seven years. The Guardian reports children's enjoyment of writing has fallen to crisis point following research completed by the National Literacy Trust. The charity says an alarmingly low level of children and young people enjoy writing. The research was conducted across the UK. 34.6% of young people aged 8 to 18 said that they enjoy writing in their free time. Although three in four children starting school said that they enjoyed writing, this dropped to one in four by the age of 16. The Children's and Young People's Writing Report is drawn from over 70,000 responses from children to the charity's annual literacy survey. The number of children who say they enjoy writing in their free time has dropped by 12.2% in the 13 years since the survey began. Young people do report that they write to improve mental health and well-being and to support causes or issues they care about. Full details can be found on the National Literacy Trust website. Finally, Microsoft News reports that Taiwan has made the move to use Generative Artificial Intelligence, or AI, to help students learn English. Teachers in the country often report that students read and write better than they speak English, as shyness and a lack of practice can hinder oral communication. A new chatbot has been funded by Taiwan's Ministry of Education to help pupils get the practice they need. The Cooley bot allows pupils to speak person to AI, and build up conversation on preset topics. It also assesses punctuation, accuracy and fluency. Taiwan has set a goal of becoming bilingual in Chinese and English by 2030. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to ask you a question. Do you use presentation software to help you deliver your lessons? 99% of you will be saying yes at this point. Have you ever considered how many presentations the average pupil in your school sees in a day, in a week, or even in their entire school life? Considering a typical secondary education, with a bit of rough maths, over a week with five lessons a day, there's potential to see 25 presentations. That's 100 presentations in just four weeks. I've left out any additional presentations like assemblies and visitors, etc. Working on a 38-week year, 
That's a whopping 950 presentations a year. That's a lot of presentations. Now, let's throw in some schools have a standardized slide theme and set layouts. Now we have 950 exactly the same lesson beginnings. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but do we really know what experience a pupil gets through a typical week in school? Are they being engaged or are they being presented with the same visual stimulus day in, day out, simply causing them to fly below the radar. If you're like me, you're now thinking, how do I make my presentation stand out? Is there a presentation software out there that's better than all the rest? In my humble opinion, this is like the visualizer versus HD webcam argument. What works for some does not work for others because all subjects are not the same, which is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but please bear in mind that what works for one teacher may not work for another. A search for free presentation software returns no less than 24 apps I recognize. Some are interactive like Mentimeter. Others have more dynamic transitions like Prezi. Most also have additional features and add-ons you can purchase. I know what you're saying. Come on, Steve. Which is the best though? Well, the answer is simple, but I've run out of time. So I'll have to tell you next week. In the meantime, please consider the number of presentations a typical pupil is subjected to in your school. Does this need to change or does it work? And how do you know? Do you have a preferred presentation software and what are the features that make it stand out for you? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And this is exactly why I need to listen to the news before the show starts instead of hearing it live along with you all. Because I've got so much to say on everything that Joe and Steve talked about today. Um, let's start with the, um, the lack of male primary school teachers. Uh, as many of you know, while I now work in secondary, I trained in primary. Um, I spent five years as a primary school teacher. I was head of PMFL, Primary Modern Foreign Languages, um, and I was class teacher for year four and year six over that time. Um, we were at, at that time in that school, we were two men um, and one male TA. Um, I believe the school now has a male head teacher. Uh, but don't quote me on that because that might have changed since the last time I went along for a visit. And I think during my practice, so I, I did a B.Ed, which meant that we did um, school practice in each of the three years. I think across the three years, I went to four different schools uh, and I believe I only worked with two male teachers in that time. So two of the four schools that I went to had a male teacher. Um, I'm not going to comment on um, the research that talks about children learning better when they see themselves represented in school, because, of course, that doesn't just boil down to gender binary teachers. We've then got issues of um, oh, considerations. I'm sorry, not issues, considerations of race and of the gender spectrum and of sexuality and all sorts of things that um, that we need to take into consideration when we are talking about having a diverse and representative workforce. But in terms of the gender breakdown, I think one of the largest issues at play comes down to career progression in education. Um, because it's not easy 
to progress your career as a teacher. Um, I've realized this in my own career. Um, I have no designs of being a head of department. I have no desire to be a, an assistant head, a deputy head, a head teacher. Uh, not at all. My mum, in fact, told me the other day that when I did my training, her vision for me was that I would become a head teacher. But I know that that is absolutely not right for me. I do not have the right skill set in order to be a head. And so for me, just within school, there is in fact no career progression because I am a teacher. I'm a class teacher. Um, I teach through to A level. So I know that there are some colleagues out there who believe that progressing through the different stages of education is, is akin to career progression. Um, so I'm already at the top of that. I've gone through threshold. So I am at the top of my pay scale. The advanced skills teacher um, program no longer exists. And so I'm starting to have to look outside of school in order to find things to help me to progress my career. So I'm having to look at things like the uh, Charter College of Teaching and the Chartered Institute of Linguists uh, in order to get myself some other qualifications to, to, to help me stretch myself. I'm looking at um, doing talks and presentations. One of the reasons that I have the show um, is because I went and I did a talk at the TM MFL Icons event this time last year um, in order to kind of progress my career. Uh, and that was where I met Tom for the first time and we got talking and he he invited me to uh, to pitch to host. Um, and so because there isn't a linear progression for those of us that don't necessarily want the extra responsibility and don't necessarily want to leave the classroom behind, teaching is not necessarily an attractive prospect for lots of people who do want progression, who do want to, to go as far as they can in their job, um, but don't want the kinds of responsibilities um, and the kind of scrutiny that heads have to put up with. On the inverse of that, of course, in primary, um, the logical progression again is classroom teacher, deputy head, head teacher, and lots of male primary teachers will have that progression, will climb that there. Um, you know, there is a lot of talk about how the number of male primary heads is disproportionate compared to the number of male primary teachers. And this logically, I haven't looked in depth at the research, but it, it seems logical to me that this is because the male primary teachers who want that career progression um, will move out of the classroom and into headship, and they're then not necessarily being replaced by other male primary teachers. And so for as long as headship and coming out of the classroom is the only way that we as teachers can progress in our careers, that problem is going to keep happening. Whereas I think if we looked at alternative progression routes, if we looked at different ways that those of us who have been in the classroom for a long time, those of us that have the skills, the experience, that do the courses, um, and, and that can be recognised, then perhaps we might get more people in general staying in the classroom instead of moving 
into leadership and management positions that they might not necessarily want to do, but feel they have to because that's the progression. Um, and we might get them to stay in the classroom and do alternative things. Quite what that progression looks like, I don't know, uh, because once again, it's something else that would probably require a, a small scale change to the system, but certainly a, a change to the system. Um, I don't have the answer to that. But I will be honest, I was gutted when I learned that the AST, the Advanced Skills Teacher um, uh, program was stopped because for me, that was something that was um, that, that was on my list, that was something that I wanted to do. The other thing um, I think, the other reason that we don't see so many primary school teachers is because there is still um, a gendered understanding of many, many progressions in England, and primary teaching is one of them. Primary teaching is still believed to be a female-centred profession. And of course, you know, I mentioned last week on the show when we were talking about the filler word like, that kind of internalised misogyny that can quite often come along when people are talking about how they they hate the filler word like and there is again that idea that men are not necessarily attracted to professions that are seen as female dominated or that there is a pressure for men not to go into female dominated professions um and and that's i suppose one of the things that we need to work on as we strive for better gender equality we need to make sure that there is equality in perception of job roles. And so we're not just fighting for women can do the same jobs as men, but we're also fighting for men can do the same jobs as women and creating that very level, uh, very even playing field. That's just my thoughts on that. Um, I went through a very quick cycling of emotions and um, when Joe talked about the chatbots in Taiwan helping children to practice their English. Um, because my first thought as somebody who has worked as an assistant was that's going to put people out of a job. Because for many language assistants, the practicing conversation is the core of their job. It's what they do. It's why they're in school. And so if that's being automated, that can take that away. My other thought was that the chatbot cannot necessarily correct the student um, as they are talking. It will probably listen and give feedback, but not in the same way that a person can. Um, it might not be able to, depending, of course, on the quality of the AI, because I have heard some AI uh, voices which are remarkable, uh, but it might not be able to correct the pronunciation in the same way. It might not be able to assimilate the, the, the content of what the student is saying to see whether it actually makes sense. There are all sorts of things that when we start trying to make technology do something that is innately human, like speech, like understanding, we're kind of stripping away some of the layers that is not necessarily in the best interests of the pupil. However, any chance to talk 
is good. Any chance to practice speaking your foreign language is good. When I um, start talking to, to my students about practicing for their speaking exams in, in French, in Japanese, in German, in Mandarin, whatever language it happens to be that I'm teaching at the time, I will tell them to talk to posters in their room, um, you know, reel off their monologues, reel off the the practice questions that they've written and, and just talk to the poster because that's less embarrassing sometimes than talking to a person. And of course, there's no difference between talking to a poster and talking to an AI. Um, and in fact, if um, what Joe said was true, and I've got I've got no reason to to doubt it, uh, the AI is going to be trained to offer some kind of feedback, then that's better than talking to a poster because it means that the child is getting something out of it. And who am I to stand in the way of a child ameliorating their English, improving their English um, by practicing with a chatbot just because I have concerns about it replacing people and, and the quality of feedback that it can give. So that was quite a whirlwind in that 30 seconds of, of learning about AI. I think AI is huge in teaching. It's going to get bigger. This is not something that I am qualified to speak about at all. Um, but I would be interested to listen to some people who are, because I think we can either, like many things in teaching, we can either fight it and we will lose that battle, I think, or we can embrace it and figure out how to make it work for us. The comparison, I suppose, that I have is Google Translate. So in MFL teaching, in languages teaching, we always get the argument, well, why do I need to learn a language when I can just use Google Translate? And my answer is always because Google Translate does not speak the language that you are wanting to use because it makes mistakes, because it's not actually creating language, it's transposing words because it's just pulling things from the internet like chatbots do. There are all sorts of reasons. But students were going to use Google Translate anyway. And so it got to the point where I had to kind of stop trying to fight it and teach my students how to use translation software responsibly. And I've realized since then, not only has my job been a lot easier because I'm not fighting a losing battle, but actually the quality of my students' work is getting better because they now know how to use Google Translate. They now know what to use Google Translate for and where they shouldn't use it. And what I'm in fact finding is that they are preferring to go back to fashion dictionaries because they, they then have some ownership over what they are producing because they're finding this vocabulary, they are looking up these words themselves. So I think the same thing is going to apply with AI. We can either fight the introduction of AI in the classroom, um, and I don't think we will win that because we are seeing it being used all the time. I believe Photoshop has already um, added an AI button to it, and so AI is not going anywhere, or we figure out how to use it, we figure out the best ways that it can be applied in our subject, and we then teach our students how to use it properly. Because after all, it could be a teaching tool. It could be a teaching tool just as good as a, um, as a textbook, just as good as a YouTube video. We just have to put the work in to find the most effective way to make use of it.
It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Okay, I learned a new acronym this week because... That's exactly what education needs, is a brand new acronym. Um, and the acronym that I learned was RHINO, R-H-I-N-O, RHINO. And it was used to mean really here in name only. So it's those children, um, as Steve was saying in the two minute tech about when they start switching off because all of the the presentation software looks the same, all of the lessons look the same. It's the children who are there, but not there. The children who are there to be ticked off on the register, but are not actually getting anything out of the lesson. Um, I quite liked that acronym. Um, I thought that was, that was quite amusing. I would never call a child a rhino, of course, but I know that I've been one. Uh, I know that I, was one back in my own lessons. Um, I remember switching off during PE lessons at school because I wasn't a fan. Um, I remember switching off quite often during maths lessons because it wasn't my favourite subject in the world. I have been one at um, training on CPD courses. I'm sure we've all sat there during inset where there is a, a a speaker hired in to talk to the entire school and is talking about something that really doesn't have any relevance to your subject. So you switch off or you scroll your phone under the table or you start planning your next lesson um, and doing everything that we try and get our students not to do. <laughs> and then I kind of learned that related to the rhino, there are parrots. And the, the parrot isn't an acronym. I think the person that I was talking to was just riffing on the, the animal theme. We've got the rhinos who are really here in name only. So are sitting there, not really taking anything in, not engaging. And then we've got the parrots who are engaging, but are engaging just by repeating back what you said, like a parrot can do. So they haven't actually processed anything in the lesson. They haven't actually learned anything. It's a proxy for learning. It's something that looks like learning, but isn't. And you go away as a teacher thinking, yep, fantastic. Um, Polly learned the Pythagorean theorem. Excellent. The next lesson, Polly comes in. You say 
we are reviewing Pythagoras' theorem, and Polly has no idea what you're talking about. It's brand new to her. She has never seen it before in her life. And that, again, is because she wasn't paying attention. She wasn't assimilating what she was being taught. She was just parroting back what you as the teacher had said. And then, of course, we have the ones who are actually engaged. Because as, as much as children get a bad rep um, all across the media, we do have those children who are not very engaged. And, and I got to thinking about why we have this, about why we have the rhinos, why we have the parrots, kind of what's going on. I think it kind of does boil down to um, what Steve was saying, is this idea that they don't necessarily have to engage. And even things that we get the students to do that we think are going to engage them, quite often don't. Because if we get them to do, for example, a think-pair-share, that is quite often just parroting, even if they are just parroting back their own thoughts. Because unless when they are sharing in their pair, they are talking through the thought process and building on what they've said, that actually is no better than had we just asked to raise their hands. Because they are still just parroting back their own thoughts. So then, as I was thinking about that and thinking about what can we actually do what should we actually be doing to get our students engaged and to make sure that they are meaningfully actively engaged i came across a reel uh which was an american college professor uh, i don't know who he is i don't know what he was teaching but he was talking about writing and he was talking about how writers write in order to get their audience to change their thinking about something. And I quite liked that. Um, you know, I thought about that in terms of my doctoral studies, in terms of all the papers that I've been reading this week, um, because I've got an essay due in 10 days. And how those people, the ones who have done the research, who have published the research, are doing so in order to get me to change my mind. But in writing my essay, I'm not necessarily trying to get my professor to change his mind because he's more knowledgeable about this stuff than I am. Um, and I'm kind of writing to just show off my knowledge, to show off what I have learned, to show off what I can do. And in writing, is quite often what we expect from our children. Uh, particularly because we are so obsessed with things like book scrutinies. We are obsessed with making sure that parents can physically see things that their children have done to prove that there has been learning going on, and so get children to write things down. But again, just writing things down quite often can be no different to parroting them. And we're not necessarily trying to get our children to change our minds. Maybe if you teach English and you're teaching persuasive writing, that might be the goal. But one of the things that we can be doing, um, and this idea came from um, Karen Jones, who is one of my professors at Reading University. She said that one of the, the reasons for writing is because we can think through writing. Because getting your ideas down on paper will help 
you to see them more clearly, will help you to make links and will help you to better assimilate that information. And again, we don't always get our children to do that, but maybe we should. Maybe we should be getting them through writing to consider their own understanding of what we've just told them, to consider their own knowledge of the topic at hand, instead of just blithely doing an activity so that we have got something to show off to parents, senior leaders, um, Ofsted inspectors, whoever it might be. And then I got to thinking, why is that just through writing? You know, I've talked before on the show about how I trained as a social constructivist. I believe that knowledge is socially constructed. So I started wondering whether talking can do the same thing, whether actual purposeful, meaningful talk instead of parroting can also improve knowledge and understanding because surely that is what is at the root of social constructivism is this idea that by talking to other people you get their ideas you process your own and you get stuff figured out so that led me down a bit of a rabbit hole Um, and i wound up on the university of cambridge website where i i came across this concept of dialogic teaching and according to Cambridge. Dialogic teaching is um, using talk most effectively for carrying out teaching and learning. It involves an ongoing conversation between teacher and students, not just teacher presentation. So it's not just standing up there with PowerPoint, with Prezi, um, with explain everything, whatever presentation software you might be using and talking at your class. It's about getting your children involved in a conversation. Um, It can be used for elicitation, so for getting common sense perspectives, for figuring out what they already know. It can be used to engage ideas, and it can be used to overcome misunderstandings. And the idea behind it, according to Cambridge University's Faculty of Education, is that when children are provided the opportunity to contribute to a meaningful extended dialogue, they can explore the knowledge, uh, the limits of their knowledge and understanding, they can find where their limit of understanding is, and that way they can figure out how to go beyond it. They can figure out how much they know and then learn what needs to come next so that they are actually learning. And at the same time, they're practicing different ways of using language as a tool for knowledge construction and as a tool for convincing people. So by engaging students in dialogue instead of a monologue with the odd answered question and then sending them off to do an activity, Teachers are able to explain ideas clearly, clarify the point and the purpose of what the children are learning, and we know that children need to know why they are learning something in order for it to make sense. They model effective ways of using language, 
and we can help our students grasp new ways of describing phenomena. Because what we can do is talk for modelling. We can model high quality writing even in speech. We know that how we speak and how we write aren't always the same thing, but we can model the kind of writing that we want our children to do by speaking it, by getting them used to it, by making it natural for them to use, and then they can transfer that over. So I was quite interested in this, in, in this idea, because this isn't a pedagogy. This isn't a brand new way of teaching. This is just the idea that all talk in the classroom can be meaningful. And honestly, this is the first time that I've ever kind of encountered the idea that me talking in the classroom can be helpful. It will come as no surprise to you because you know that I can talk. Um, that a lot of the critique that I had in my practice and in my NQT years was that my teacher talk was too much. I spent too much of my lesson talking. Um, all the books on pedagogy talk about how we need to reduce teacher talk time because these children should be doing stuff. That has always seemed a bit antithetical to me. It hasn't really ever made sense to me because as the teacher, I am the one that knows the stuff. I'm the one with the knowledge. And so it's partly by talking that I get the children to understand the, the new subject. So if I'm not talking, how are they learning? But what I've realised is when the books, when the courses say reduce teacher talk, they don't mean or they shouldn't mean that the teacher doesn't talk as much. What they mean or what they should mean is that the teacher should be engaging the students in dialogue. The teacher should be engaging the students in conversation and the teacher should be part of that knowledge creation process. We shouldn't be the ones transmitting the knowledge. Like I've said before, our children are not empty jars waiting to be filled with brilliance, but we help them to construct their knowledge through talk, through dialogue. Um, so this then led me to a paper written by Neil Mercer of the Faculty of Education at Cambridge uh, called Talk, Thinking and English Teaching. And I will tweet a link out um, afterwards for anybody who is interested. And while this is based around English teaching, um, I read it as somebody who teaches English, but also teaches classics and modern languages. And I thought there's a lot in this paper that is interesting, that is relevant, that is transferable. And, and I think that regardless of what subject we teach, there is a lot in this idea of dialogic teaching, dialogic learning that we can take into our classrooms that we can use to engage our students so that we no longer have rhinos who are just there flying under the radar. And we no longer have parrots who are tricking us into thinking that they know the right answer because they can repeat things back to us, but are in fact engaged with what we're talking about and in fact do learn what we're talking about.
and we have more actual learners. I can't think of a good animal. Uh, the person that I was talking to didn't have an animal for the, the children who are actually engaged. So again, if you've got one so that we can finish off our analogy, um, I would appreciate that. But uh, Mercer's paper is really interesting to me because there are some amazing points that he makes all the way through that I kind of wanted to share with you today. So he starts by talking about or writing about why talk is important to children. And he says, talk of the right quality promotes the development of children's reasoning, conceptual understanding and reading comprehension. He says many children do not get a rich enough experience of spoken language outside school for this development to be assured. Now, interestingly, I was reading a an article this morning. Um, one of the ones that, that made me quite angry because it was blaming lockdown for all the things that are going wrong in the world. And um, it was talking about how a student came back to school after lockdown and and started to cry during a lesson because he had forgotten how to write. He had forgotten that physical process of writing. And that made me think about what our children do do outside of school and, and the exposure that they, they do get. And it made me wonder how many of our children actually do have conversations with people outside of school. Um, or how often they are just watching things on YouTube, scrolling through their social media, playing games, um, even imaginative playing with very young children is not necessarily conversational, it's more transactional. And so I think, I think Marissa does have a point here when he says that lots of children quite often outside of school don't engage in meaningful conversation. And that's not always down to um, the adult influences. That's not down to parents not engaging them necessarily. It's down to the fact that children might not want to have conversations with people in their free time. You know, children don't see talking as a valuable use of their free time they want to play they want to watch they want to scroll they want to to do whatever it is they're going to do and so it is the school that is kind of responsible for providing this environment of learning how to have a conversation and learning all of those conversational conventions that they may not be getting outside of school learning about turn taking learning about seizing and holding the floor learning about power language, learning about verbal fillers, which ones are appropriate to use in what kind of context. All of those things that lots of people take for granted because we forget that we learned them, that we did learn them. They're not natural, they had to be taught to us. And it's one of those kind of life skills things that we can work into our teaching regardless of what subject we, we teach. Um, so Mercer says children do not just need to 
just sorry children do not just need experience of speaking and listening in school they need to expressly taught the relevant functional skills how to use talk to construct arguments jointly solve problems and comprehend texts and this got me thinking about particularly about constructing arguments um and the idea that we write in order to change somebody's mind because it got me thinking about how scary writing is as a process, uh, particularly when children switch over from writing in pencil to writing in pen. Because when you've written something down, it's there, it's permanent. And even when you write something in pencil, you rub it out, but the, um, the indentations in the paper are still there. And I think quite often putting something down in writing can be scary because of that permanence. And I wonder whether it's why people so often prefer to type than to write, because when you type something and then you delete it, it's gone. And when you say something, it's gone immediately. It's one of the things we notice in MFL that scares children about speaking the foreign language, because they feel that there is an immediate judgment of what they say. But the impermanence of language can also make it a lot less scary for the children. Because if they try and construct an argument in speaking and they get something wrong, they can be corrected and they'll internalize that correction, but then there is no evidence of the mistake. And we know that people don't like to be judged negatively. We know that people don't like to feel like they have made mistakes. And so if there is no evidence of it because the words are not being recorded, then the child might be more prepared to take risks and to try new things out and to be corrected. And that then could be transferred into writing. So if we get them to talk through things first, to construct their arguments in speech, maybe do a spider diagram, maybe do a mind map, maybe do a bullet pointed list of things they want to say, then they construct their argument in speech. And then if they have to, they put it down on paper that might make the whole process a little bit less scary for them. Mercer says children learn most from talks in class when the children develop, the teacher develops children's reflective awareness of how to talk and work together. Because again, particularly for young children, that is not natural. Children always know how to be cooperative. And I've seen this with my GCSE French class this year. Um, I'm trying to use role-playing games to promote them speaking French and to get them engaged. And all of the game scenarios that I've used with them so far start off being cooperative. And the idea is that they work together in order to uncover the language points that I need them to learn um, in order to progress through the game. But what I've noticed, and, and something that I need to spend part of the summer thinking about, is that they will very naturally turn against each other in the game. They will take my scenario of cooperation and turn it into something very individualized, very independent, where they are then fighting against each other. So even up to the age of 15, 16, the idea of cooperative work is not naturally ingrained in many children. And so this is something that needs to be modelled, that needs to be encouraged through the encouragement of, of speech, through the encouragement of talk, so that they can learn how to do it. 
Um, teacher encourages children to express tentative ideas. So we get them to think about the fact that you don't need to have a full-blown idea with a beginning, a middle, and end, a point to evidence conclusion before you start to express it, because quite often it can be in expressing the idea that the rest of it comes to you. How many times have we done that? How many times did we do that at uni? How many times have we done that on the lesson plan? Where you start writing something and you're not really sure what you're saying, but as you are writing it, the idea comes and it just starts to flow and it's more natural. Again, that's not something that children like to do because children don't like to be corrected. They don't necessarily like to be prompted. They like to get it right. So the idea of, of giving a tentative explanation is quite scary. Whereas again, if we can model this in talk, where it's not permanent and it goes away as soon as they've said it, and maybe instead of the teacher jumping in and saying, okay, well, what next? Why have you said that? Somebody else in the class can add an idea that promotes the cooperative learning and it gets them to understand that it is through the exploration of an idea that you come to a conclusion that you don't necessarily need to have a conclusion when you start, because you will find that through analysing your data, through thinking about other people's ideas, through building your knowledge as community. Teacher models good talk skills in whole class discussion, because again, like we've said, like I've said, um, Children do not always have good modelling of discussion. Let's be honest, adults don't always have good modelling of discussion. If you look at question time, if you look at um, government procedures that are televised, discussion doesn't always happen. It quite often boils down to arguments and mudslinging and point scoring. And so we need to teach our children how to properly discuss things, how to respectfully disagree with people, how two people can be perfectly um, and equally convicted of their ideas, of their arguments, and still get on with each other. That is something that is really important for children to learn. Um, the teacher can scaffold group work, but should stay out of it. So in group discussion, the teacher should be there, if possible, in order to make sure the children stay on task and they don't start talking about TikTok videos they've seen, but the teacher doesn't get involved because the children need to construct their knowledge. And I suppose if the teacher does need to get involved in order to um, correct a misconception, then the important thing there is to model how you do that as knowledge construction and deliberately creating tasks that will get the children thinking together, deliberately promoting collaborative work. Again, instead of just group work that doesn't necessarily need to be collaborative, if you give your children group work that could be done just as easily on their own, and you're only doing it in a group because you feel they should be doing some group work, that's not really group work. That's just getting them to do an independent activity with their friends. So think very clearly about why we are using group work, about what we are trying to get it to promote. And if your idea does not need group work, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you go, oh, okay, so this is an independent activity, not a group activity. You just think about what you can do in order to get the children to think together as a group. Now, as teachers, we are very aware that some children lack the experience and the skills in having conversation, having dialogue, in thinking through talking. But we don't always teach them how to do that. And I've been guilty of I've been guilty of saying, oh, such and such student doesn't know how to um, do a very basic task that should be common sense. And what I do about it is I complain instead of showing the student how to do it. When in fact, as the teacher, that is my job. Uh, you know, as their French teacher, it might not be my responsibility to teach them the difference between there, there, and there in English. But actually, if they don't know it, and it becomes evident in my lesson that they don't know it, then I do have that responsibility to teach it to them. Not just because it will ultimately impact on what they do in my lesson, because I've had that before, where students have um, Google translated some homework, they've typed the wrong there into Google Translate. And so when it came back to me in French, it didn't make any sense. Uh, and it took me ages to figure out what they were trying to say. So it does have an impact on my lesson. But more importantly, it's a life thing that they need to know how to do. So if we, if we do start to teach things that we feel they should already know, but they don't, then we are in fact improving their all-round quality of education. Now, let's be honest, when we do teach talk in whatever subject we do, we tend to teach presentation skills. We tend to teach them how to do what we do all the time, standing up in front of their classmates with a PowerPoint talking about something. And presentation skills are very important. The research skills that go along with it, the ability to speak in public, the ability to hold attention, to hold an audience, those are all very important skills. But they're not the only talk skills. And so if we focus on presentational talk and not exploratory talk, children come to believe that the only time they should be speaking is when they have something presentational to say. The only time they should be speaking is when they have perfectly understood the concept of the lesson and they should explain their answer to a question. What they don't do is start to go, okay, well, I think I understand Pythagoras' theorem. I think I get that a squared plus b squared is the same as c squared. I think I understand that that's because of the size of these squares along the, the lines of this triangle, but I don't understand why this triangle, this square is bigger than this one. And an exploratory talk doesn't need to be fluent. It probably shouldn't be fluent. In the same way that I'm doing exploratory talk right now by talking this through with you, because I read about this paper, I've read about these ideas, but this is the first time I've tried to explore them out loud. The things that I'm saying with you are not necessarily fluent because they are coming out of my mouth as I think about them.
but they are helping me to understand the concept. And so what I'm doing, and I've done this very deliberately on the show today, taking you behind the scenes, we're going meta about our meta. I am modeling what exploratory talk looks like. I am modeling the idea of thinking out loud. And that's something that we should be doing with our children. And again, we've talked about this on the show before, about the construction of teacher identity and this idea that the teacher should be known, uh, should be the one who knows, should be the one who gets the knowledge across. But actually, if we're always the one who knows, if if we are never having to explore anything, then we're never modeling exploratory talk with our children. And so the only type of talk they're ever seeing is presentational talk when we're standing up there in front of our prezi. So teacher talk is, is largely dominated by closed questions or what we think are open questions but aren't necessarily because we are still anticipating a correct answer. And we don't ever really think about the talk that we're using in the classroom because we're told not to talk very much anyway. And so when you're being told not to do something, you don't really have the impetus to think about it. And and so, like I've said, when we are told to reduce talk, I actually don't think that's necessary. I think what needs to be done is making sure that we are not being overly obsessed with presentational talk, but that we are engaging our students in exploratory talk, that we are engaging our students in the dialogue, and that we are part of that conversation with them. Research evidence, according to Mercer's paper, has shown that teachers who are aware of the importance of dialogic talk, who are importance, aware of the importance of talk for learning, and use specific talk for learning strategies in their teaching, ultimately get better results. Now, I'm not a results-oriented teacher. Um, I believe very much that results can only show you what a student was able to do for a specific exam paper on a specific day. However, if we kind of take that idea of results and we broaden it out a bit, and we talk about learning, and we talk about production of work, and, and we look at a long time portfolio of evidence for each child, as opposed to just an exam, a result, then I think that's important. And so if we've got these properly trained teachers who are effectively engaging children in dialogue for learning by using very specific strategies, then we can see that they are learning things because we can see that improvement in their thinking, in their writing, in their talking, in their understanding of our subject. So let's kind of posit a case study. Um, let's think about a reading comprehension, for example, because you guys know that here on Saturday morning breakfast, we love to read. Um, in fact, I think I owe you an update on my reading. I did one before um, and people responded very positively to it. So I'll, um, I'll need to break the spreadsheet out to talk to you all about that again. But 
let's say we're doing a reading comprehension with our students quite often. And, and I did this as a primary school teacher in guided reading. Um, they would go away, they would read the thing, uh, they would read the text. One group would be with me, one group would be with my TA, one group would be inverted commas independent, which just meant that they didn't have a teacher with them. But all three groups would follow the same um, pattern of read through the text and then answer the questions. And the questions were quite often closed questions because they were comprehension questions. They were testing how well the student understood the text. And that is important. I'm, I'm just going to make that very clear. I am not against the idea of traditional reading comprehension. Because it is important for our students to, to be able to understand what they are reading. But actually, what do we do when they don't? What are our strategies for improving student reading comprehension beyond giving them more comprehension activities to do? What do we do to make sure that when they are reading, they are assimilating the, the messages that are being put across? The best way to do that, I have come to believe, is through asking open questions about texts and accepting a variety of answers. So instead of looking for a right answer to a closed question, you ask an open question based on the text so that you can so that you can hear what a student has understood by the text. And then if they have understood what the text actually says, regardless of how they phrased it, that's a positive thing. If they haven't understood what the text has said, then you can have a dialogue. You can have a group discussion. Why is Johnny's answer different to Timmy's? Johnny, where did you get that information from? Timmy, where did you get that information from? Everybody else, whose answer do you agree with? Why do you agree with it? And you can begin to build that knowledge together. And quite often, in my experience, if you do that, the child who, who didn't understand will realise that they didn't understand because they will start talking through their thinking. And as they are talking, their thinking will change. We can reformulate and summarise what students have said and we can do that in language that is more appropriate to a formal piece of writing, for example. So a student thinks out loud and is just saying stuff. As a teacher, you make notes if you need to, so you remember what they are saying. And then you say back to them, OK, so what I hear you saying is, and then you reinterpret, you reiterate their points, but in a way that would make for a compelling argument or a good piece of writing. We can encourage thinking by asking the, the, the metacognitive questions. How did you know this? Why do you think that? What evidence do you have for this? And that in turn teaches them that it is important to have evidence even for an opinion that you can't just pluck things out of thin air and say it. It's not true just because you've said it. We need something to support that. We can also get them to respond to each other. 
And again, this is really, really important because I think a lot of the interactions that children can have with each other these days are quite negative. Um, you know, we see it in comments on social media where you can have really very negative comments. We read a lot about how there's a lot of, of boisterous, quite often violent talk that happens while they are playing collaborative games online. And I think a lot of the way that children relate to each other um, is by teasing, is by making fun. And so what we can do is we can start to reformulate that. We can start to model how you can somebody's idea without resorting to an ad hominem attack. So how you can tell somebody that you think they're wrong, that you disagree with them, and do so in a way that doesn't belittle them as a person. And ultimately, if we do that, we are raising generations of children who actually know how to debate, who know how to have arguments, and who understand that having an argument with somebody doesn't mean that they are the worst person who has ever lived. It just means that they disagree with you. And as long as their argument is not endangering or hurting somebody, then they can be entitled to their interpretation of an opinion. So those are a few ways that we can explore this kind of dialogic talk. Those are a few ways that we can, can kind of get our children engaged in talking. And I think quite often classroom talk is a bad reputation. And I think quite often this is because, as I've, I've talked about and as I've bemoaned before, we get so into this idea of children having to write things down, of there needing to be things in, in books, uh, in jotters, in planners, in whatever, to prove that we've had a lesson. But in fact, quite often, just getting children to sit down, doing some circle time, kind of as it was back when I was a primary school teacher, and having a conversation can be just as important, can be even better at building knowledge than getting them to write something down in a book. And what actually are we there for as teachers? Are we there to justify our own existence? to justify our lessons by having them write something down, or are we there to improve knowledge? Because as far as I'm concerned, it's the latter. We are there to educate, we are there to teach. And so talking, purposeful, exploratory, directed talk is just as valuable as an activity, a written activity, in a book, I think. Um, Saeed has texted in, good morning to you. It's really nice to have you here. Um, I don't know whether you are a regular listener, um, but I'm, I'm always glad to see names that I've, uh, that I've not seen before. So it's good to have you pop up. Um, Saeed texted in to say that the show has been interesting. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I think, um, for me, one of the things, and again, this is probably why it's a good 
thing to have other people talk. One of the things that I love about Teachers Talk Radio is that we can listen to other ideas. We can listen to other methods of teaching, other pedagogies, things that we might not necessarily have thought about because we do get so wrapped up in our own idea of, of what is good teaching based on what we do. And we can listen to other people speak and hear some other interesting ideas, hear some other things that, um, that, that can and should be heard. So I've been thinking about what we as teachers need in order to do this better. Because, of course, I've sat here and say, oh, well, teachers should be doing this, this and this. Children should be doing this, this and this. Um, and, so, and I've been thinking about what we need. I think what we need to do is to understand that talk is not just the um, the domain of English teachers and foreign language teachers, but it 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 underpins, as Mercer says, it underpins children's achievement throughout the curriculum. We need to m not just model, but get children to engage in exploratory talk as much as presentational talk. There needs to be an explicit emphasis on our modelling of exploratory talk and there needs to be direct teaching of talking for thinking and this always becomes a sticking point doesn't it when people start saying oh we need very explicit teaching of x y and z because we will all start saying well when is that going to happen there's no time you know we, we all know these these issues but this is where things like the PSHE curriculum can come in handy, life skills, study skills, um, P4C, philosophy for children, tutor time. There was a discussion on Teacher Talk Radio the other day about whether forum time is in fact a waste of time. Um, and it needn't be. If form tutors are given activities such as, as those we've talked about today that can help promote exploratory talk, then we could use form time for that. We can do it in our teaching by just slightly changing our model from presentational talk to exploratory. From I'm going to stand up in front of my whiteboard and talk at you, to I'm going to pull my chair up to the table and I'm going to talk with you. We're going to rearrange our furniture into a circle and we're going to have a chat before you go away and do your activity. So just small changes to how we do the teaching part of our lesson can lead to these big changes in bringing um, pedagogic discussion, pedagogic dialogue into our teaching. And I think at ITT level, at initial teacher training level, and in CPD level, we need teachers to have a better reflective understanding of how they personally use talk and the cognitive educational function of talk for children. Um, we need to be mindful of the fact that actually we do teach children how to use talk whether we are planning to do so or not every time we talk to a child we are teaching them how it's okay to talk to somebody else everything we say to a child is assimilated 
And then they go, oh, well, if my teacher says it, it's okay for me to say it that way. If my teacher treats me like this, it's okay for me to treat people like this. And so we need to be cognizant of the fact that while we might not be explicitly teaching talk, everything we say is a lesson. Everything we say is internalized. And we need to reflect on that and make sure that we are using our talk in a positive, powerful way rather than a negative, powerful way. We need to think about the talk culture of our class. Again, I was thinking about this with my year 10s yesterday. My year 10 group is just boys, um, and they are a very laddie group of boys. And so there are things that I kind of give them leeway for. But as they were chatting about something while they were working yesterday, I realised the point at which they went off topic and and I had to make the, the decision between I let them carry on with their discussion, with their banter, because I don't want to spoil the class dynamics and well, what they're talking about is not relevant to my lesson, are they just wasting time? So I did a... I did, a, I did a lap of the room, I circulated, and I saw that as they were chatting to each other, they were working. They were, they were doing the activity that I'd asked them to do. Now, a lot of people will say, yeah, but because they were talking, they still weren't learning. They still weren't taking in that information. But as I reflect on the activity that I got them to do, I wonder whether they would have taken that information in any better in silence or whether in fact what I was doing was just getting them to fill in a worksheet because I realized that I didn't have anything in their books for a few days and I had felt that pressure that I've complained about this whole show to have something written down. So I think talk culture is really important, not just in terms of what is said and the tone with which it is said, but also in terms of, of how it is used and what it is used for. We need to get a balance though between authoritative and dialogic talk. We're not part of the class as teachers. We are still the teacher. We are still in authority. We do still have to make sure that they follow our rules, that they respect our authority in the classroom. And so there is a balance to be struck there that I think is gonna be difficult to get right when this is implemented. But I think perhaps engaging the children in dialogue might help with that behaviour management. It might help to keep them on track. We need to design activities that are suitable for group-based talk. So we will need to go back over our planning. If this is new to us, we need to go back over, find our... Um, our learning objectives that are suitable for group-based talk and then design an activity that promotes talk and an activity that is done on a worksheet and can be done just as independent just as well independently as in a group is not actually a group activity so think about why you're putting them in the group and if it's not because they need to be in that group to do that activity find a different activity 
And we need to use informal methods to assess and monitor the children's talk. We should be assessing, we should be monitoring, because we need to be figuring out whether our approach to teaching children how to talk for learning is working and is right. And if not, we need to, to make that change. But what we don't want to do is start having talk tests, because that then will put them off. That then will make them not want to talk and we will go back to having rhinos and parrots. In 2007, Mercer and Littlejohn wrote, there is no research evidence to persuade us that all children in the crucial years of their development naturally encounter all the language genres that they might need for taking responsible control over their own lives. But there is evidence to the contrary. Good teaching can make a world of difference to children's futures. We believe we know what the children are going to need to succeed as adults. And we need to make sure that we are teaching it to them. And correct talk, correct register, and learning how to learn, learning how to use talk to improve your own learning, not just by taking in other people's ideas, but also by reaching the limit of your own and figuring out through exploratory talk how to push beyond those limits. Those are important life skills. And I think if we are results-oriented teachers, as I'm sure some of my listeners are, the results that we get from encouraging this collaboration will be worth the time that we put into doing it. Because if it's not, then that means that the social constructivist view of education is wrong, that in fact we don't learn from other people and we kind of need to rethink the whole point of school anyway. Because one of the things that people kept saying about the school building during lockdown was that it was important for people to learn together. And how are we getting them to learn together if a lot of what we do is just independent work that we pretend is group work, that we slap a group work label on. So yeah, there we go. Those are my thoughts. As you probably heard, my cat was quite desperate to have her thoughts heard too. Um, so she also understands the importance of talk. <laughs> but all animals, you know, all animals talk, all animals make noise. We all want to be heard. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be understood. And I think it's really good for us to offer our children that opportunity. Thank you very much for tuning in today. I do appreciate it. I hope you found it as interesting as I have. Like I've said, I will tweet out some of the resources that I've used in putting this show together for anybody who wants to think about talking a bit more or talk about talking a bit more. Please do stay tuned. As always, we have some amazing things um, coming up today and over the rest of the week. Um, I believe we've got Graham on at 5 p.m. Um, here on Podbean. Uh, we've got the Week in Review with Tom tomorrow as a live video stream. Uh, we've got Nasja on at 1 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, Nasja and Krupa, sorry, together on at 1 o'clock tomorrow. We've got Maud at 5 o'clock tomorrow. And then, of course, we have as always, our wonderful, wonderful um, uh, set of shows 
before I see you again next Saturday. I am very much looking forward to it. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend and a fantastic week. And I will speak to you all soon. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.